Hello, everyone. Welcome to another bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre with me as Z. In this episode, we have an XSS on League of Legends, a post on car hacking and some serious fails in Hyundai, and a Grafana RCE and some other various things uh, mixed in there. Before that, though, just want to note that next week, December 12th and 13th, will be our last podcast episodes for the year uh, before we go on our Christmas break, and we'll be returning on January 9th and 10th. Uh, so did just want to bring that up, make anyone aware it wasn't around last week when I announced that. And uh, yeah, with that out of the way, we can jump into our first topic, uh, which is uh, a, well, a bit of an old topic. Uh, the Humble Bundle deal that we talked about last binary episode, um, we didn't bring it up on on the bounty side and, and Z wanted to get into that. So, yeah, we're bringing it up again and uh, I'll let Z take the lead here. Yeah, I'm not sure this even was up yet for us to cover it on the bounty side, or it might have just been that morning before the episode. Um, so yeah, I talked briefly about a couple of the books that were interesting, a bit more on the binary side from this bundle. Um, on the bounty side, and you have hacking APIs. I haven't read the book, but I have basically only been hearing good things about this book. It kind of tackles that... Um, that ground between like a lot of you know web applications these days will just have a front end that communicates over an API kind of tackles that middle ground between web acts and like web attacks and API specific things like there's a huge overlap there but there are some distinct things kind of plays around in that middle area a bit which is really nice to see uh bug bounty bootcamp not familiar with it so I don't really have any strong recommendation there, but it is a no starch pressed book. I'd assume it's at least decent, but the hacking APIs one solid. Um, ethical hacking was a book that surprised me. I talked about this yet yeah, last time or last year around this time when we talked about their uh, bundle. It's just a bit broader than I would have expected. Ethical hacking, I kind of expected to go into like network security and pen testing. It actually does spend a good chunk of time on like application security on fuzzing on bit of vr stuff it's very surface level so it's not like really deep or anything but it was more broad than i was expecting which was nice to see black cat python always a fan favorite not my personal preference but people seem to like the book it's an option for uh learning uh learning python or at least having some project ideas play around with in python um, but yeah, I mean, there's a few books here, some to take a look at if you're interested. There's a good bundle. No Starch is generally a um pretty good publisher. I generally don't have many issues with their books, though. I'll admit there are a few books here that are a bit gimmicky, or I guess I'd say. But yeah, want to at least shout out the bundle. It's available. You can take a look. All right, so uh, we'll get into our first uh exploit related topic um which is by portswigger and it's on hacking service workers via dom clobbering so uh yeah it's a bit interesting when it's talking about service workers um if you're not familiar you know they're <clears throat> they're basically like workers that can run to provide caching and offline stuff um which you know portswigger goes into um z i'll let you talk this this one through yeah, I mean, they could run arbitrary JavaScript in the background. You'd set them up to run on specific events. That said, what's interesting about this is more of the DOM clobbering aspect. I think the whole ability to hijack a service worker, it's interesting, but it does seem like a pretty rare occurrence 
where you'd have this sort of setup. So what this application, we don't know what the application was that he actually found this issue on. Uh, but what it was doing was it would have this, um, it would have a div inside of it uh, called CDN or with the ID CDN domain. And it would use that div to kind of pass around well, the CDN domain, a domain that would end up being used by the service worker. The kind of path here is you have this div, ID, CDN domain, you'd have text side there representing the domain, and then some JavaScript would run, and when it registered service worker, it would generate that service worker URL. Um, I pulled up here, and it would use... Not the right example that I wanted, but either way, it would register the uh, service worker URL and it would include a host URL parameter in that service, in like the URL for it, um, based off of what it read out of that ID. So you have the case where if you can, uh, using DOM clobbering, if you can clobber that same uh, CDN domain, you would be able to control the host from which it would try and import, the service worker would try and import all its scripts. It's a kind of a weird setup. I haven't really seen that before. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Just my personal experience. I don't see that a lot. I would usually see if there is going to be that sort of injection. It would be injected, say, right into the JavaScript somewhere. Um, not doing it through like a random div that gets included and then it reads a div. I completely believe someone somewhere is doing this. It just doesn't seem that common to me to actually see that sort of setup. Um... But anyway, if you could do the DOM clobbering, and for a DOM clobbering attack, you do already need to have some sort of injection on the page. Because the idea is, if you can inject like another DOM with the same ID, when it does this uh, get element by ID, it's only going to return one, one element back. And so you're going to hope it's your element instead of the one they actually trust or want to have included there. Um... And that's where I think the more interesting part of this comes off because they do point out a couple cases where you can clobber the uh, get element by ID uh, without actioning to have your DOM or your injected element first. Because usually you would want to have um, that element show up uh, first. And one second, I think there are going to be some audio issues of Spectre work when trying to talk. I just need a moment. Um, I was going to say, go. like, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'll take the opportunity to ask, like, um, I, I don't really have much experience with DOM clobbering. I've never really tried it. And so I was about to ask, like, is there some sort of ordering guarantees uh, with get element by D that you're aware of, like how it how the hierarchy works in the engine, I guess. Um, it's not really something I've thought about or had to think about, but um, My understanding... maybe this post gets into that a little bit. It doesn't really. It, they talk basically with the same assumption or same understanding that I've had, which is effectively you need to be first. Whoever's earlier in the tree gets it. So basically, if I had to imagine how the code's written, I have not looked at that. It's probably just scanning over and the first one it runs across is the first one that it gives it to. Um, If it's looking for the ID, so look, or go over the tree, find the ID, and return it, not really looking any deeper. So you just need to be first, higher up on the page, effectively. That said, I I'm saying that, but there must be something more complex, because they do call out, if you can inject the HTML tag into your page, 
then that'll actually take precedence. So even if it's later, uh, you'll actually be able to clobber it. So they have the example here of a div, and then the HTML take comes after it, but the HTML take still ends up taking precedence. Uh, they called it out as working with the body take also. Um, and then they also point out how you can do this inside of SVG. So SVG body or SVG for an element, and then the HTML takes effectively getting the injections there. But these are places where you can inject later. And that seems like the more interesting, or at least the takeaway here to me. It kind of makes sense that the tag, like those higher level tags would take precedence uh, in like the DOM ordering. I, I can see how that makes sense. Yeah, and they call this out as being something you can clobber against query selector also. Um, use query selector instead of query selector all. And again, returns just presumably the first element, and you can still clobber the classes. Uh, usually query selectors use the query by classes. It could be more complex than that, but you know, you get you get a lot more of a query sort of syntax for that. Um nonetheless. They mentioned using HTML body. So I, those are the two big takeaways that I'm getting from this post. The service worker attack there, that just seems a little bit unlikely. If it's there, great, but it doesn't seem like the most common setup to read that out of a DOM by of the DOM by ID and pass it in. Maybe I'd be surprised by that. Uh like by how common that is, but um But yeah, I've I'd say the main takeaway is really just the fact that you can still clobber after the fact. It does require that fairly privileged situation where you are able to inject DOM elements. That's it. I feel like DOM clobbering, it's a pretty old attack. I remember being talked about, you know, a long time ago. It's been around, so it's not like a new attack. I feel like, you know, as cores, maybe as they get, like, stronger or get used more often with, you know, properly written cores policies, DOM clobbering is a place where you can still get some sort of injection, get some sort of JavaScript running, um, and be able to bypass any sort of course policy because you're not injecting an actual script. Uh, it's just one of those places that maybe in the future, as time goes on, we'll actually see DOM clobbering becoming a little bit more important with the like, full exploit chain on the web. Right now, I really don't see it talked about too much, and even this simple thing. Uh, being able to use HTML or body, maybe that's well known. I just didn't know about it. Uh, was a little bit, you know, surprising or at least novel to me. So I want to call it out here. Yeah, I mean, as always, some interesting research coming out of Port Swigger. Um, that's looking at something that doesn't have a ton of, you know, eyes on it, uh, and could become more important going into the future. So yeah, it's it's always nice to cover the Port Swigger posts when they come up. All right, so uh, up next we have a HackerOne report on an RCE in Grafana through the uh, through SMTP server parameter injection, uh, more specifically a CRLF injection in the password configuration setting of the, uh, the SMTP server, as well as the username and from name parameters, which are mentioned a bit later on in the report. Um, and yeah, fairly quick issue for this one. Uh, it was possible to inject new lines and subsequently set non-exported configuration variables um, that are passed through to the Grafana image renderer. Um, which can include the rendering args, which they state can lead to uh, code execution. Um, and yeah, it led to a fairly significant bounty at $5,000 and, and got a critical rating. Um, bit interesting here in the way that I think you would need an existing token and some authentication to be able to set the SMTP server config. That's not typically something that's like 
uh, you know, like any untrusted person can set. Um, so I was a little bit surprised that they paid that high, to be honest. Um, but nonetheless, you know, a decent bounty for a pretty common issue of new line injection. And yeah, I just wanted to throw it in there because it's, you know, something we like to cover when it pops up is like a trivial, fairly trivial vuln and like a pretty big piece of software. And yeah, the I mean, issue- nice bounty of it. The issue itself is trivial, and that's just the new line injection, but finding it, I think, is a little bit more tricky because of just the route that you go to this. This isn't something where you'd have been able to, like, um, just source the sync it and, well, I guess if you had the file as, like, an untrusted source, you might be able to pull that out, but then you'd still need to find the way to modify the file and do this. Like, you wouldn't find this vulnerability exactly. You know, using a lot of static analysis wouldn't really pull this off. Um, it could pull off the, uh, perhaps for the new line injection. Um, but like if you're testing for RC, maybe you have some hooks to see what commands are being run as you use the application. In that case, you wouldn't really uh, have this flow up because you have to get the exploit correct in order to get really anything to happen. You have to specifically go and mess with the image renderer settings inject that, go through render arcs, and get that all correct in order to actually exploit this. So, like, testing it is a little bit, like, you have to be aware of everything going on and see, uh, you know, the file right, and then what you can do from there. It is still something, like, you know, a new line injection is something to test for, and you can look that and see that, so it's not that difficult, but it is interesting to see it being pulled out here with that damage, um, just because of that knowledge kind of required on it. Just a fun little bug, really, too. Um, you do have, in, in a sense, it's kind of getting to the second order attack where you have your first order just writing it into the file. Something else goes and trusts that file later. Um, so, yeah, nice attack. Um, in terms of uh, the payout and severity of it, because you are going from just a user or even an admin being able to do something, configuration here, on the system to having code execution within their one of their cloud systems. That is a bit like that is a step up. They don't expect you to have code execution on their system. Um, so I can understand giving a higher rating to this. Yeah, fair point, I guess. Uh, when it comes to cloud, it's there's a bit more of like a privilege separation than we see on a lot of uh, other similar topics. So. I mean, even if it wasn't in the cloud, even if this was just the case of, you know, a self-hosted instance, it's still a case of um, of going from your user with access to code execution on the system. Like, that is still a step up in privilege and a considerable step up. Well, typically, though, it, it like, it's not really seen that way, right? Um, like you'll have like an admin panel that gives you the ability to run code as part of like, you know, the admin suite or whatever. Um, typically it's not really seen as, as much of a security boundary in in like non-cloud setups, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're still technically it still correct. Is. Like it is, it is giving you an escalation regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, there are users of a system that are meant to be able to run code. Sometimes it is the case. And I feel like this is less common these days than it was like 10 years ago where you'd have the adminary just letting you run code. Grafana is not one of those cases where the adminary, as far as I'm aware, can just run code. 
Um, so at the very yeah. least, in this context, you're not expected to be able to just run code. Uh, even on general self-hosted things, I don't see that as a feature very often anymore. Perhaps that's just I'm choosing to run better software, or perhaps that is the case. There's just less software that is doing those obviously insecure things. I don't right. have the stats to know either way. Yeah. All right. So uh, speaking of privilege escalations, we'll get into our next topic here, which is a sexless advisory on a race condition in Snap Confine, uh, which is a SUID root binary that's installed by default on Ubuntu. Um, and this bug was in the must mkdir and open with perms function. So as you can imagine by the function name, this is a helper function that's responsible for making a directory and opening it. Um, but the thing is, if the directory already exists, so long as the directory doesn't belong to root, it gets renamed to a random directory in temp, and it tries to recreate the directory again. Um, so you can probably see where this is going. Ultimately, you can get a directory that you don't own renamed, and you can potentially race that to get snap confined to use a directory you control for its operations, which you can sim, sim link off to somewhere else to get a root file right. Um, now they go into a bit more detail on how this works and their like overall strategy. Um, yeah, so they down here where it says the three key ideas. Um, and yeah, so it basically involves running two instances of snap confined running in parallel. So you can run one instance, um, block it after it creates its root directory, run another instance with an instance name that collides with the temporary name of the first. Do you know how the they can block instance. it? Sorry. They just yeah. say block it. What are they doing there? Uh, so they they talk about... Um, they don't really go into detail on it on this advisory. Um, they kind of link off to another one, but they talk about doing uh, like a single stepping technique. Um, I'm not totally sure how that works. I didn't look into it a lot. Um, but yeah, they seem to be able to like single step through snap can find sort of like a, a GDB scenario. Um, so you can like block it at certain stages. Yeah, um, I, I saw that. I didn't go look at their lemmings advisory. They do that a couple times here where they're just go refer to or other write up. And I didn't have an immediate link to it. So I didn't end up yeah. doing that. But all right. Yeah, that's kind of where I stopped. It was I saw they did this through some method, but I don't actually have the method they used. Yeah. Um, so they can run one instance, um, block it after it creates the root directory, run another instance with the name that collides with the temporary name of the first, um, and then kill the second instance immediately after it renames directory, which then allows you to manually recreate that directory and resume execution of the first snap confine. Um, so when that first snap confine resumes, it'll read the tempter inside of that root directory you now own and control, um, and it will follow the sim links. Um, they did have some problems they had to overcome to exploit this, though. Uh, for one thing, it was difficult to get the symlink followed by SnapConfine because the function that would mount the namespace uh, bind mounts a read-only squashfs into the root directory. Um, so you're kind of in this catch-22 where it's like, if you create the symlink before the bind mount, it gets covered over by the squashfs, and then if you... And you can't create it afterwards because it's a read-only file system. Um, the way they got around that was by mounting a uh, fuse file system onto root immediately when creating it. Um, and it, this was kind of interesting. Um, and I, I never seen this mentioned anywhere else. But with the fuse file system, you can basically unmount any subsequent bind mounts. Um, so in this case, they could unmount the SquashFS basically right after it was mounted through fuse. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I, I thought that was a pretty cool trick. 
The other problem they had was Snap Confine used app armor, which would prevent uh, bind mounting temp onto an arbitrary directory on the system. For that, they had to use a pre-existing vuln in MultiPathD, which gave the ability to basically create a root directory named failed WWIDs anywhere on the system. Um, and they essentially turned that into an app armor bypass. Uh, this is another cool trick that I that I liked. Um, they don't go into a ton of detail on it, but what I believe they do here is they use that ability to create a like limited name directory um, to create an app armor policy namespace. And then they just set that namespace to be able to do whatever they want. So yeah, basically creating their own namespace through app armor um, that they can you know laterally move into um, to be able to yeah bypass app armor. So then they finally they were able to exploit the bind mount against the multipath lib. You know they figured they're using multipath for bypassing app armor anyway, so might as well attack it. Um, so yeah, they they attack the multipath uh, library directory create their own shared library and then get multipathy restarted to get their library ran as root. So it's a pretty um, complex like chain and how it works. They had some various problems to overcome. And like Z said, unfortunately, there is some like missing info in this advisory. Um, you would have to go read up on like two or three other advisories to get the full picture of like all the details that are happening. Um, but you can get the like, you know, overall idea and strategy that they went with here. Um, and it is kind of an interesting bug whenever you have these file system races. Um, it, it can be really difficult to defend against from like a, a code perspective. And uh, yeah, they even said at one point, like they tried to suggest uh, not even allowing this rename feature to be in the code uh, because they saw it as like so dangerous originally, but they they needed it for what they wanted to do. So they weren't going to do that. And um, at the time, it wasn't proven to be exploitable. It actually took them some months maybe even up to a year to prove that it was exploitable so yeah um a bit of a tricky chain and a, and some cool tricks in there as well uh especially with the app armor bypass and the uh the fuse trick to to unmount the future mind mounts yeah, um, it's some cool stuff i wasn't aware of there it's definitely a bit of a complex chain on there um we'll say it is fun to kind of see you know taking a fairly simple vulnerability of just you know those two vul the two cvs they used uh to create a directory and being able to use that as like their full app armor bypass like that is something that would usually be seen as a pretty weak primitive to start off with is creating this directory not even control over the name of the directory but that alone was sufficient uh to kind of wrap up the x y it's just neat to see that um, but yeah, whole, and it's like, a technique I could see borrowed for other exploit chains too, for sure. Yeah, and on a um, whole, these do kind of come down. Like the whole race condition file system issues, these are like traditional kind of desktop application issues. Um, you know, I've seen similar things in a lot of just services. You know, even you know, obviously SnapD is on Linux, but you do see these sorts of races in Windows too. A little bit different because the sim linking is different over on Windows, but ways around that either way or regardless um you know it is kind of indicative of the types of issues you might want to search for if you are doing kind of the desktop style applications instead of just looking at web bounty yeah so getting into some more web issues um next we have one of our headlining topics which is an xss in legallegends.com via easy xcdm um 
which is a developer-focused JS library that provides an interface for doing cross-origin communication. Um, and it involves kind of a producer and consumer setup. Um, so a producer page can export functions that can be invoked by the consumer page. Um, so it's sort of like RPC on the web, basically. Um, in this case, the producer was the account.legallegends.com slash PM page, um, which exported some various functions, uh, such as like the send function for sending requests and responses cross origin, um, a get cookies function and a set cookies function. So obviously, as the pointer, the author points out, um, these sound pretty sensitive and useful from an attacker standpoint. So there is some protections um, to try to make sure that an, an attacker can't just invoke these, you know, arbitrary functions. Um, mainly what that's based around is an allow list. So yeah, the, the document referrer was checked against an allow list of domains owned by Riot Games or their partners. Um, and on top of that, the message origin reported by EZXDM was also checked against that same list. Um, so they started looking at some ways that they could bypass um, that referrer check. Uh, one way they explored was like posting a link on the League of Legends form, uh, which would match the wildcard uh, LeagueofLegends.com rule. But it relies on a victim clicking the link. It's it's not really a great attack vector. They wanted to see if they could find something better. Um, and yeah, so they went looking for something else. And they did find something better um, through EZXDM, uh, um, which was an open redirect in frame element transport. So frame element transport is primarily used for passing variables using the frame element property on Gecko browsers. And one of the things it allows you to do is you can set the window uh, top location to this uh, XDM dot or XDM underscore E parameter, um, which you can control. Uh, and it's also known as config remote, which is kind of important for later on. Um, and you can get to that path by specifying the protocol or XDMP um, to five, uh, which I believe makes it so the frame element transport is actually used. Um, now, there is one additional stipulation there that the document refer has to be set as well which could be stripped by browsers, especially nowadays. Um, but this was reported back in 2016 or so. It's only recently that they were allowed to disclose it. So at the time, um, browsers were probably letting that through more than they would be nowadays. So that's kind of relevant for like the exploitability and, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, um, they ended up using this Apollo consumer page to uh, pivot to the PM page through open redirect. Um, so yeah, they now had open redirect and they could bypass the refer check, um, but there was still the origin check on the message. So they still needed another bug. Um, the second bug they found was in hash transport, uh, which is used for communicating across iframes through the window location hash. Um, it seems like a bit of a hacky technique. And the problem with that technique is it's not possible for the parent page to know who actually updated the location hash. And so the hash transport just has to assume that all of the messages coming from this um, or came from the config remote property, which is also attacker controlled. So an attacker can basically just say like, hey, these messages came from a trusted origin um, by setting the config remote to a trusted domain. Um, the thing is, there's a catch 22 here though, because both the open redirect and the bypass relies on setting that config remote. So they can either set it to an attacker domain to get their malicious page loaded in the open redirect, but then all the messages will be rejected due to not being allowed from an, uh, due to not being from an allowed origin. Um, or they could set the config remote to an allowed origin, but then their web page will never get loaded. So it's a bit of a tricky scenario. Um, so they had to revisit their open redirect bug and revise it with a slightly different path. 
Um, this time they leveraged hash transport again to basically do some nested frames um, to get their attacker page loaded under this Apollo consumer in an iframe, um, which could then change the parent window's location source back to pm.html to ultimately send messages to pm uh, to invoke methods. And since it proxies through the iframe, it's seen as coming from an allowed origin. Um, this too was a little bit limited because they couldn't receive messages back since they don't have the context of that second level iframe that communicates with PM. So they were able to send requests to it, but they couldn't get responses back. They were blind, basically. Um, on top of that, EasyXDM tries to sign and verify uh, incoming messages. Um, this at least, though, is bypassable as well, um, since they sign using a secret, assuming the attacker doesn't have control of that second level iframe from the start. Um, so an attacker in this case, because they do have control of the iframe from the start, they can just set their own secret and get access to those me uh, methods I mentioned earlier. Um, the way they take they exploit this is they use the ability to make XHR requests to uh, take advantage of a jQuery feature, where if a jQuery request URL ends in equals question mark, uh, it'll try to load it as a JSONP call, and that essentially gives them XSS. Um, it's a bit of like a weird thing with jQuery where I, I think it's patched in jQuery v4, um, but on lower versions, yeah, it just kind of has like that hidden feature or functionality um, where it'll try to load it as a JSONP call if it ends in the equals question mark. I don't know if you've really seen that too much before, Z. I don't think we've seen it in the topics we've covered, but... Yeah, I don't think we've covered it. I mean, JSONP has definitely fallen out of favor in general. Um, it was more common kind of in, in the earlier days of, uh, like, Ajax and all of that. Um, not as common anymore, because there, there, are, there are some other issues that kind of come from just... Because the way JCP would work is you'd basically provide it, like, the callback to execute um, when it's done from a remote origin. It just created a lot of issues, so I, haven't, I don't see a use super often anymore anyhow. That's probably at least part of why jQuery would have phased it out. Or phased yeah. it out where it's just going by the domain. Or, okay, sorry, by sense. the URL. Makes sense. Um, but yeah, at the time they exploited this, uh, yeah, they, they were able to get fairly easy XSS abusing that feature. Um, and they can do it blind since they, they don't need any response. They have XSS already. So yeah, it's a pretty long chain and a winding road of problems to get to the final goal, but putting it all together, they were able to achieve XSS. Um, there is a little bonus snippet towards the end of the post where um, Riot included a partial mitigation where they updated their Apollo endpoint to check the document refer against the allow list again at the second level. Um, but the researcher found a, another bypass um, by using the login auth flow to redirect to the Apollo endpoint. And thus, you know, since you're being redirected from the login off uh, endpoint, which is going to be in the allow list, they can bypass the allow list check. But um, yeah, this was a fairly old report back in 2016. Um, it might be one of the oldest like vulnerabilities or attacks that we've covered in that way, though the write-up is new and it is an interesting and pretty complex chain. Um, and it's against League of Legends, the League of Legends site, which is a pretty big game, so... Yeah, there's some interesting aspects here. It is a bit of a difficult read. Um, you are going to have to go through, like, like yeah, there's like three or four steps uh, and blockages they had to get around and rework their chain and stuff. Uh, yeah, it was it was one of the more complex web chains that I'd seen that we've covered on the on the podcast. So, um, yeah, there's, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in here. 
definitely a lengthy chain. Um, I appreciate the fact they came back and actually did disclose this. I mean, being from 2016, there's a lot of reasons just saying, well, it's too old, don't even bother, especially as a lot of these things aren't even relevant anymore in the sense of like how account League of Legends.com works today. They call that out as like a lot of this isn't even relevant anymore, but still disclosing it so people can see how the XY worked and going into that. I really appreciate getting that information, even if it's not like the latest bug. It is still an interesting chain to see and, you know, can still inspire ideas for others to follow up on in their own situations. Yeah. All right, so we'll move into our last topic here, uh, which is our other headlining topic, and is about Hyundai and the fact that uh, it was possible to remotely control the locks, engine, horn, headlights, and trunks of vehicles made after 2012. Um, so this was posted in a Twitter thread by Sam Curry, um, and uh, Z looked into this a little bit more, so I'll, I'll let him take the lead on it. But uh, yeah, I definitely saw this one making the rounds because the, uh, the impact is pretty interesting. Yeah, and the issue is... Uh... It's a pretty fun bug. It is, it's yet another like JWT issue or yet another normalization issue, depending on how you want to look at this. Uh, so with Hyundai, you've got their vehicles, you've got this web panel you can use, or I assume also like their apps just use it as an API, use the app, and it sends an API request to unlock or lock or whatever the vehicle. And what it does with that is for authorization, when you log in, you get a JWT pretty standard there and you send that with your as like an access token with your request the jwt would include the user's email in it and what was interesting is also when you would make a post request um to actually do something so they have the example here of making an unlock request uh it would send in a parameter so you'd send in the vehicle's vin and you'd have a parameter username which included the um same email that already exists in the jwt I forget if I mentioned that the JWT would include the user's email as one of the claims or whatever inside of there. Uh, just so you can associate this token belongs to this user along with the normal normal set of or piece of information in there. So they thought it was a little bit weird that you would have to send the email with it when your access token included who you were. Um, but they did notice that if the email you sent didn't match the JWT, it would basically just throw you off with an error, being like, hey, not your not your user, whatever. I assume it also did the usual like expected checks for does this user own this VIN sort of thing. But the bug they actually ended up finding here was that the JWT's email would effectively get normalized. And in addition to that, registering an account didn't require confirming you actually owned the email. Uh, so combining those two, they could register an email address that ended with a carriage return. Um, have that carriage return character as part of their email that they register with, and that ends up in the JWT as like email with carriage return. But when it does the comparison of the email you're sending in as part of the request body and what's in the JWT, it'll do some normalization there and it'll see these two emails as being equivalent or equal despite the fact one of them is definitely different, just because of some normalization going on there. So you could register this example at gmail.com, carriage return email, and then send the unlock request for a vehicle belonging to 
example at gmail.com without that little trailing carriage return, and it would accept it. That is kind of a pattern I've seen with some APIs before where you'll have the same information, just like this general pattern of having the same information two places or repeated and trusting one over the other or just choosing one of them because you think they're equal. Um, it is a pattern I've seen before. So I'm not super surprised that it's here at the same time. Avoiding having that duplication of information is kind of a way to avoid this. Nonetheless, because it would normalize down this tacker email being something different, normalizing to the same thing, you could basically make any request as the victim user, as the user with the normal email address. So a very fun issue, again, normalization issues are always kind of interesting to see because they just pop up in weird places. Um, but yeah, in this case, um, so I did mention you had to send the VIN, um, there's another API request, so you could use this against, like, more than just that one API request, um, so you could use this to also list all of the VINs that the account owner held, so you'd be able to expose the VIN that way, you don't have to know it, all you need to know is their email address, and you can register this, uh, matching email in order to get access to their account. Yeah, yet another case of uh, JWTs kind of kind of being misused. They're not trusted doing some normalization. I don't know where I'd want to really set the blame on this one. If I want to say, you know, just trust the info right out the JWT and don't try and be too smart. Or if I'd want to say, um, you know, just don't do the normalization and the duplication doesn't matter. I'm not sure where I'd really want to put the blame on this one, but it is an interesting bug nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and of course it, it offers some interesting functionality because of what the app support, um, you know, supporting being able to start the vehicle, stop it, unlock it, whatever. Um, which, you know, when you're talking about like multi tens of thousands of dollars vehicles, um, it's, it's pretty, we've seen car hacking, uh, used for, uh, stealing them before. So yeah, pretty, pretty interesting impact here. Um, could Pretty be simple something for that, stealing too. Um, some of the past ones yeah. we've talked about for stealing have been, I, I think we talked about one of like the key attacks, which was like a crypto issue and very yeah, low I remember level. That one. Um, had that crazy video to go alongside of it, all epic music and everything. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, this one's pretty simple. I mean, it's a web or API attack. It's it's a nice bug. Like I, I do like this one. Um, and yeah, the damage just because of where it is, uh, is significant. Yeah. It's one of those attacks that, uh, it could be very practical. Um, somebody could make like a device or just use their phone or something to like pull this off. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty interesting chain of attacks, uh, because of, you know, how interesting it was, it made the rounds, um, now, as far as I know, like this isn't relevant for, uh, like the newest models or anything like that. Um, that said, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't, I don't remember if he goes into that at all. I'm just checking. Uh, I don't think he's, yeah. So he says we reported it uh, to Hyundai. Yeah. So they've confirmed the fix. So yeah, it's not, it is like fully patched. It's not really going to be used to anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, pretty interesting att attack chain overall. 
Yeah, and this is kind of the sort of thing you could apply to other APIs. Maybe not as sensitive as vehicle unlocking, but just come just when you have that duplication of information, that comparison, one of them gets trusted, you can have this sort of issue come up. Um, and normalization issues. We were talking about them last stream or last bounty episode too. Uh, normalization is a problem, and I think it's really hard to kind of wrap your head around all the different things that can happen just when you, like, lowercase or uppercase something. I don't know if that's what happened here, to be clear. I'm not saying they were specifically, like, lowercasing and that stripped the uh, new line character, but it's easy. I mean, a lot of developers would just be like, you know, strip a string of, like, trailing white space because why would I want white space there? And then you can have this sort of issue come up. Um a lot of times the bugs are, I think, quite a bit uh, less important. But it is still the case of... Uh, it's still something that happens, and, like, keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Uh, and Hex AT well mentions in chat, I mean, people use the same card for almost a decade, though. Um, yeah, but I believe where this is at, like, an, like an API-level issue, um, I, I think it's fixable, like it's centralized by Pundai. Like they can fix this at the API level and the attack is dead. Like um, the, the car model, I don't think matters very much for like the exploitability of the attack, basically. Yeah, they don't really talk about what the communication between the API and the vehicle looks like. This is between the app and the API where this yeah. issue existed. So there may be some other issues at like that level of communication. Um, but this issue could be fixed. Yeah, I think I misspoke a bit earlier because I mentioned like the latest models or whatever, and I was kind of thinking through it as I was talking about it. Um, so yeah, I totally understand the confusion. But yeah, I believe this is at the API layer, um, so it's it's not tied to the specific car models or anything like that. Now, if you found an issue from like the server to the car models, then yeah, that would be uh, a bit more of an issue uh, that wouldn't be as easily fixed, I don't think. So yeah. Um, but yeah, with that said, um, that's pretty much everything that we have for the episode today. So Z, unless you have anything you want to add on, we'll go ahead and, uh, wrap the show up. Yeah. No shout outs. All right. So, uh, thank you everyone who tuned in. The VOD will be up on Twitch immediately or on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. We also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple podcasts, and more links on anchor. If you want to join our discord and follow us on Twitter links for those are down below or in the chat. And we'll be back tomorrow with the binary episode. That's at 7 PM Eastern, 4 PM Pacific. And we'll see you then.